what do you need to be truly joyful? And I want you to really think about that this morning. In order for you to be a joyful person, have joy, what do you absolutely need to have or to experience or do? What from your life is essential for your joy? You're joyful if you have whatever. You're not joyful if you don't. Here's another way to look at the question and make sure that you you really think about this deeply. Fill in the blank here. My joy in life would plummet or nosedive if blank was taken from me. Here's another way to approach this. Finish this sentence. I can only be happy if, or finish this sentence, I would be much happier if. Do you need to be healthy in order to be joyful? Do you need a certain level of wealth in order to be joyful? Do you need a good marriage in order to be joyful? And these these are really tough questions. I mean, they're penetrating questions, but they're good questions. If you really think about questions like these um, and you're honest with yourself, then you'll learn something about yourself, about your joy. So don't run from questions like these. Really think about them. Do you need beautiful and compliant children to be joyful? Do you need a fast pace of life or do you need a slow pace of life in order to be joyful? Do you need a good boss to be in control, to get your way, to have sex, to have uh, good grades, to have cool stuff, to have no conflict? What do you need to be joyful? Now, be honest, so much of what probably comes to your mind, what probably comes to my mind, can be taken from us or can change, right? And if your joy is dependent on something that can be taken from you, then your joy is volatile, or volatile, rather. It's unstable, it's unpredictable, it's vacillating. You see, our joy goes up and down and up and down, and it always follows the ever-changing tide of our circumstances, and that makes us restless. That makes us restless, and it makes us scared that our joy will be taken away. And this is what happens when we find our greatest joy in something that can change. We live with anxiety. That's something is lurking just around the corner that will ruin us, that will wipe us out, that will take our joy from us and take what is most precious for us and then we won't be happy. Listen, what if there was a joy that could never, ever be taken from you? A kind of joy that was so durable that it could withstand the worst possible circumstances in life. Would you want that joy? Would it be worth trading all of your unpredictable joys to have that one indestructible joy? Would it be worth it? And I'm here to tell you some great news. Indestructible and perpetual joy really exists You can have it. It can be yours. Every day of your life, it can be yours. You never have to fear losing it, misplacing it. You never have to fear living without it. 
You can have a joy that can never be taken from you. And I want you to hear me say as your pastor that I want you to have it. I want you to be just that joyful, that it cannot be taken from you. The first part of this sermon is really going to set up the second part of the sermon. And so the first part is really, really important that you tune into. You have to hang with me here. There is a logic here to this passage that you can't afford to miss because your greatest joy is at stake. So we're talking about your joy. That's where we're going to get to. But we have to set some groundwork first. So think, Jerusalem church. Think. So that when we get to your joy, it's going to fall in place for you, hopefully. So here we go. The disciples didn't have any idea what Jesus was talking about. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. You can see it in verse 18. They were clueless. Uh, Sometimes when I talk to computer programmers or techies, I have no idea what they're saying. I'm sure they're saying something that's intelligible to someone or to them. But to me, I'm just like not getting it. Um, And perhaps you felt that way about talking to different people, maybe talking to doctors or something. I just, I know you said something that means something, but I just don't get it. Jesus was communicating very meaningful things. But his disciples were lost. And Jesus said in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. They didn't get that. They didn't understand what he was saying. They heard him say he was going to the Father multiple times. But when he said, a little while and you will see me, well, they were confused about that. They, they had been confused since chapter 14. They don't know what he's saying. Verses 17 and 18 explain their confusion and tell us exactly what they were saying to each other. What's he mean by a little while? What's this little while stuff about? The sequence or the timing and the meaning of it all wasn't falling in place. It just was unclear to them. The pieces were not fitting together. And Jesus, you got to know, he talked this way for a reason. He was purposeful. The enigmatic words of Jesus were purposeful. The enigmatic words of Jesus were purposeful. Enigmatic is not a word that you use every day. I don't use it every day, but it's a good word. So let me just define it so that you know what I'm saying because it's appropriate here for this point. Enigmatic means, get this, it's hard to understand. That's easy to understand, right? Enigmatic means it's hard to understand. It's head-scratching. It's perplexing. It's like an enigma. We need to think to figure it out. It's logical, it's meaningful, absolutely, but it's hard to figure out. Jesus was often enigmatic. He was hard to figure out. He was cryptic. He was veiled, but he talked that way for a reason. Drop down to verse 25, and you can have your Bibles open to John 16. It would help, but verse 25, Jesus said this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. There you have it. He spoke enigmatically. Why did Jesus talk like that? Well, I think the biggest reason was probably to glorify God's sovereign grace, to show that no sinner understands the gospel. Nobody's going to figure out God and his truth and the gospel on their own. No one's going to get God unless God opens their heart and mind and causes them to understand the truth. And that comes right out of 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not 
able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what needs to happen for a sinner to truly, I mean, to truly get what Jesus is saying, to truly get the enigmatic words of Jesus? Well, that's easy. God must change their heart and mind and give them the capacity to understand. They need the Holy Spirit in order to discern spiritual things, and that makes complete sense. The Holy Spirit is needed. Then when someone really understands what Jesus is saying, when they really get it, when it lands home in their heart, then what happens? God gets glory because he's the one that gave the capacity to understand. It's for the glory of God. He gave the grace. Now, the disciples eventually, in time, knew exactly what Jesus Christ was talking about. How? Well, for one, they experienced the events that he was foreshadowing. And Jesus sent them eventually the Holy Spirit of truth to live in them and to help them, if you remember from the past passages, to help them remember and to interpret what had happened and what Jesus had said. So they not only experienced it, but then the Holy Spirit came and allowed them to understand it. That's sovereign grace. So their understanding glorified God and showcased his amazing grace. Verse 19 says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Jesus knew they didn't understand. He knew they didn't get it. And they were deliberating with each other over his words, and he asked a question that he already knew the answer to. He was leading them into knowledge. Now, parents do this with their kids all the time, right? They ask questions that they already know the answer to, but they ask them so that their child can learn something. They're leading their child through a question to get them to grasp something. Jesus asked the question, not because he was ignorant, but he wanted to teach them something good. And notice that he asked the question in verse 19, but he doesn't even give them time to answer. He's on to the next thing. He just continued. He, he was a masterful teacher who made sure that his students got what he was trying to say. He did it in a masterful way so that in the long run, they would understand what he was saying. His enigmatic words were gloriously purposeful. He did this for a reason. God's glory and their joy was his aim. So what was Jesus talking about? Because we want to know what he means. And it's kind of funny because back then the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. And today, Christians disagree about what Jesus was saying. So it's like, come on, really? But, um, but none of the most common and best explanations of what Jesus was saying, change this one simple thing, that Jesus is the key to indestructible and perpetual joy. Nothing, no interpretation, no good one at least, is going to change the fact that Jesus is the key to indestructible and perpetual joy. And I believe that Jesus was talking about his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So first, here are some competing views. So you get a quick snapshot of this. When Jesus said, a little while and you will see me no longer, 
Some Christians think that he was referring to when he would leave the earth and he would ascend back to his father and that when he added, and again a little while and you will see me, he meant he would send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to glorify him so that his disciples would see him spiritually through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Are you following that? That interpretation could be right. Other Christians think Jesus was talking about his ascension and the second coming of Christ. They would see him again when he would return to the earth to take them to heaven with him. That is also a possibility. I think Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection. He said, a little while and you will see me no longer. As in, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put in a grave and you're going to be separated from me. You're not going to see me. I will be dead in the tomb. And then he added, and again, a little while and you will see me. As in, I am going to come back to life. You're going to see me alive. I'm going to come to you before I ascend to the Father. I think that's what he meant. Now, some Christians take a mixture of all these and think that he's at some level talking about all of them. And that could be also something that was in the heart of Jesus. But I think that the most natural, the most clear, the most readable explanation and interpretation points to his death and his resurrection. Now, where am I getting that? Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. First, the words weep and lament and even sorrow are linked directly to death. Death. Second, his death would obviously cause them incredible grief. Third, the other interpretations inadequately explain verse 20. I don't think Jesus was talking about his ascension because the disciples wouldn't weep and lament at his ascension. Neither would the world rejoice at his ascension. The disciples would grieve at his death, and the world would rejoice at his death because he was finally dead and gone. He was out of the picture. We took care of the problem. Plus, on top of that, the disciples did see him after the resurrection, and they, in fact, did rejoice when they saw him. Even Jesus' illustration from verse 21 strengthens this interpretation. Look at the verse again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus used childbirth to illustrate what the disciples would feel at his death and resurrection. There's a great parallel there. Now, childbirth is tough and exhausting. I should know. I watched Christina do it three times. It's exhausting. I'm glad the nurses took care of me. I mean, I just had to watch. And and when you think about it, carrying a child, it's beautiful. And it's violent. It's violent. Comedian Rita Rudner said this, Life is tough enough without having someone kick you from the inside. That's about right. 
It's about right. And it's more violent in the delivery room. Carol Burnett said one time, having a baby is like taking your lower lip and forcing it over your head. That sounds bad. And, and I see the women, they're like, mm-hmm, you done, throw that thing right up over. It sounds horrible. Someone else said this, and I love this quote. I love it when people say, isn't natural childbirth beautiful? Sure. If you like pain, blood, cursing, tearing, and yelling. I thought that was funny. So the point is, when labor hits, watch out for the pain, because it's on its way. But when that little beautiful baby, when that human being is born and placed in the mother's arms, the joy she has in her child eclipses the pain of delivery. The pain is no longer the focus. The child becomes the focus. The birth of this beautiful little human being is so amazing and exciting that it outshines the anguish of the past delivery and it brings joy that overcomes pain. This was a great illustration for the disciples because they would very soon weep and lament at the death of Christ, but in a short time, God would take their sorrow and he would change it, he would morph it, he would make it joy, rejoicing. Like a baby emerging from its mother's womb, Jesus emerged from the grave to live again, and when they saw him, they rejoiced. He's alive. Our Savior's back. Life triumphed over death and pain, and life reigns forever. Notice how verse 22 connects back to verses 20 and 21. Just like a mother in childbirth, so also you have sorrow now. They already had sorrow. If you look at John 16, 6. Shows you they had sorrow, but their sorrow would actually heighten at his death. But Jesus added, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Jesus Christ would emerge from the tomb alive to see them again and they would rejoice. He didn't say, you will see me again. He said, I will see you again. He was active. And that's amazing because he was the one dying. And yet he was guaranteeing that he himself would come back and would see them. He was in control. He was sovereign. He was God. He was working this out. He was confident that he would return and see them again. Dead people can't be, dead people rather, can be seen, but they can't see anything. Jesus would see them again, which means Jesus would be alive again to see them. And that's spectacular, my friends. His resurrection would cause in them the great, excuse me, the greatest rejoicing. Let me show you a few more verses to reinforce why I think Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. And we're focusing on the statement now, and again a little while and you will see me. In Matthew 28, Mary Magdalene and, other, and the other Mary went to Jesus' tomb and they saw that the tomb was empty and then they talked to the angel and they heard him say this to them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Well, the Marys left, and they left really happy. 
fearful but really happy. And then Jesus met them and he said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. They will see me. And that sounds just like John 16, 16. Then when the disciples arrived in Galilee to the appointed mountain, Matthew 28, verse 17 says, and when they saw him, when they saw him, let that hit you. Jesus is alive. They saw him. Eyewitness testimony that Jesus raised from the dead. Luke tells us about two disciples that met Jesus and talked with them on the road to Emmaus. And as they talked, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. It's really a great story in Luke. And, and then as they were eating that night together, Luke 24 verse 31 says this, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight They were seeing him. This was a very physical thing. Well, then the disciples all congregated back in Jerusalem, and they were all talking about the resurrection. There was a buzz, and all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to them. And Luke 24, verse 41 said, And while they still disbelieved for joy, while they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they were so stunned, so happy, that they didn't even believe what their eyes were seeing. They didn't even believe it. In John 20, verse 20, it says, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's John 16. That's John 16. The word for glad in Luke 24, 41 is the same Greek word for rejoice in John 16, 22. What Jesus said in John 16 came true during the 40 days that he remained on earth after his resurrection and before his ascension. Even when Jesus ascended and returned to his father, Luke 24 verses 51 and 52 say, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Not weeping and lamentation, joy that he, has, that he was alive and that he returned to the Father. One last thing, look back at verse 17. The disciples referenced Jesus saying, because I am going to the Father. And your mind should say, ascension, going to the Father. And that refers to his ascension, but realize that the cross and the resurrection needed to, become, needed to happen before the ascension, before he returned And that is where the sorrow was turned to joy. The cross and resurrection hadn't happened yet, so you can understand why the disciples were confused, why they didn't know what was going on. Um, They should have been asking better questions. They should have been processing this. Jesus, while we have you with us, could you explain what you mean? No, doesn't seem to be follow-up questions. For us, it makes sense. Looking back on these words, we're like, oh, come on. It's right there. You got to get that. His death and resurrection has already happened. That's past. We look back at it and interpret his words in John 16 through those events. The cross and resurrection are so precious. And here's where I want to to turn our focus to our joy, your joy, my joy. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the key to your greatest joy. That's the key. He is alive. That makes a difference. 
We can be happy about that. Draw your greatest joy from anything other than the crucified and risen Christ, and your joy will be volatile, unpredictable, unstable, and subject to change because your circumstances are always subject to change. Anything can change. It will change. So, so I want to help you see how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can turn your sorrow into joy that can never be taken from you. A joy that lasts through the pain of this life and the ecstasy of the next life. Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want it? Don't you want the kind of happiness that cannot be stolen from you or diminished by your ever-changing circumstances? Life is full of change, uncomfortable change. And and I want to help you know how to have joy that can never be taken from you, how to get it, how to experience it. How do you get that? And our church exists to show people how to get that paramount and perpetual and permanent joy. That's why we exist. We're leading people to that joy in Christ. And so these few words of Jesus have the power to give you a joy that can never be taken from you. Not by sickness, poverty, personal loss, persecution, war, natural disasters, broken marriages and families, demanding bosses, corrupt and chaotic politics, busy schedules, even death. Nothing will ever be able to take from you the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. And I want you to have it. And I know that you won't truly be happy until you have it. First, what has the power to take your sorrow and turn it into joy? What has that incredible power? Well, you should want to know the answer to that. We all have sorrow. We all have things that we want God to to redeem and to turn into joy. If your marriage is struggling or your children are rebellious or the wrong person gets in the White House, nothing in this world is going to turn the deepest sorrows into the deepest joy. You just won't find anything powerful enough. Look back at verse 20. Jesus told his disciples, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Sorrow was inescapable because Jesus had to die. They needed this sorrow because the resurrection of Jesus would transform it into joy. God would take their sorrow at Christ's death and morph it into joy at his resurrection. There was a process to that that they had to go through. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples to be a devastating blow against the Messiah, a permanent loss. Jesus was gone. All is senseless. Nothing makes sense anymore. But Christ's resurrection took all that sorrow and senselessness and turned it into resolute and indestructible joy because of the power and meaning of the resurrection. God is the only thing powerful enough to turn your greatest sorrows into your greatest joys. Knowing that Jesus is alive and that you are alive in him is the gospel that turns the deepest sorrows into the deepest joys. The word for turn, very interestingly, is the, word, is the same word used of creation in John 1.13. All things were made through Jesus, it says. Made. God took the sorrow of the disciples and made it into joy. 
God can do that in your life, but he won't do it. He won't. He can, but he won't do it for you unless you draw your greatest joy from the fact that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross in your place to pay your sin debt off in full and suffer your just sentence so you can experience life and joy forever in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is alive, and that must be your life. That must be your joy or else you'll never be as happy as you could otherwise be. Are you dead? Jesus is alive, and he can make you alive. Are you overwhelmed with sorrow? Jesus is alive, and he can take your sorrow, and he can transform it into joy. The resurrection of Christ has the power to do that for you. When a mother sees her child, joy. When you really see the beauty of the crucified and risen Lord in the gospel in all his glory, God will turn your deepest sorrow into your deepest joy. The Christian life is defined by joy because Jesus is alive. No sorrow can change that. Can any sorrow in this life that you could face that could be around the corner reverse the resurrection of Christ and all of the benefits of Christ that are yours in his resurrection? Does anything have the power to reverse that? Nothing can change him. Nothing can hold him, stop him, rob him, claim him, or restrain him. Christ has conquered and won your permanent joy. Look at verse 22. Jesus said, no one will take your joy from you. What joy? We need to know what joy he was talking about so that we can have that joy. And here's what I think he meant by joy. Jesus would see them again. They would rejoice because he is alive, and the cause of their rejoicing could not be taken from them. So we ask, what was the cause of their rejoicing? Seeing and savoring a crucified and risen Lord. Jesus could not be taken from them. Their joy was secure inside the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, and they possessed that joy by union with Him. That's John 15. Verse 22 is the assurance of salvation. Can you read it there? This should, this should comfort your heart in your salvation a million times over. By grace, through faith, Jesus is yours, and therein everlasting joy is yours. Joy is yours because Jesus wants you to have it, and he will keep it for you and ensure that the Spirit produces it in you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love Wow, you need to study your Bibles. Come on, folks. Love joy. The Holy Spirit produces joy in us. Nothing can reverse the joy and blessings of the death and resurrection of Christ applied to the believer. Their joy was indestructible. Their joy was lasting because it was in Christ alone and Christ is indestructible and Christ is everlasting and Christ is eternal. Who can take Christ from you? When Christ is keeping you, 
when Christ is abiding in you, when Christ's word is abiding in you. Who can take that from you? No one can touch that. He is the only thing that cannot be taken from you, folks. Everything else that you have can be gone in a second. And with it, your joy, if that's what you trust in. Listen to what Dr. James Boyce wrote. Do you understand that their sorrow was itself changed to joy? It was not that their sorrow was followed by joy, that joy came afterward, but what was sorrow still remained. No. The sorrow was itself changed into joy so that what had been the cause of their sorrow before was now in equal measure joyous. Do you understand that? The death of Jesus was incredibly sorrowful, but it isn't anymore. Not for the Christian, it is cause for rejoicing. The death of Jesus is not sad. It's throw a party awesome. When I went to see The Passion of the Christ back in 2004, I wept at that movie, but not because of joy, because of sorrow. They were tears of mourning. It was so vivid and so intense. And with a lot of other people, I left the theater that day in silence and sorrow. And what a weird and unbiblical response to the passion of the Christ, to the message of the gospel. We should have left the theater rejoicing because our Lord and Savior is alive and our sins have been paid for in full and we have a joy that no one can take from us. Think about it. What should the tone of the Lord's Supper be? Certainly not sorrowful or melancholy, right? That wouldn't match the truth of the gospel. The tone should be rejoicing, rejoicing, joy, celebration at what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. In the past, our Good Friday services uh, have had somewhat of a solemn tone. And I have contributed to that because I helped design a few of them. But does solemnity fit the occasion of Good Friday? The resurrection of Christ makes Good Friday an entirely joyful celebration. We shouldn't try to temporarily block out of our memory the resurrection of Christ so that somehow the weight of Good Friday can just be driven home. That's foolishness. We live after the cross and resurrection. Good Friday is awesome. I don't know if streamers are appropriate. That's probably irrelevant, but we should be celebrating. Okay? There are really good reasons to be solemn in a worship service, but the overall tone of our worship should match the gospel, which is joy and celebration in what Christ has accomplished for us. We need to work together to be more celebratory and triumphant in our worship services. That's not to downplay at all the sorrow that we have in this life. It's real, it's palpable, it's deep at times. Paul captured that in 2 Corinthians 6.10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are beat down at times and sorrowful, but we rejoice because Jesus is alive. Isn't that what he's saying? So we can rejoice even in our sorrow. Even in our tears, we can rejoice, but never 
is our sorrow at the death of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because Jesus is alive and his death is now joy-inducing. Verses 23 and 24, they address prayer, uh, which parallels some things that we've covered in the recent sermons. And, uh, but I want you to understand that Jesus changed prayer forever. The disciples had never asked God anything in his name. They didn't pray in the name of Jesus like we do. Jesus changed that, and now uh, they were to ask God in the name of Jesus for the fame of Jesus. And the death and resurrection of Christ, what they do is tune us into the necessary radio frequency which carries our prayers to God loud and clear. God hears us because of the accomplishments of Christ. And notice what happens when we ask God for something in Jesus' name. God gives, we receive for the purpose of our full joy. Joy. The death and resurrection of Christ are essential to answered prayer, good gifts from God, and full joy. Prayer without Jesus is meaningless. Meaningless. William Hendrickson commented, what he means is, we ask all this on the basis of Christ's merits. That's important. Christ's merits, what he has done. And in harmony with his redemptive revelation, the disciples had not been basing their petitions upon this ground, end of quote. So please understand this, that our prayers are offered and answered because of the accomplishments and glory of Jesus Christ. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you should expect amazing things from your prayer life, that God will show up and that God will answer and give you what you ask in the name of Jesus for the fame of Jesus, and you can expect fuller joy as a result of your prayer life. You know, people hope in a million different things, hoping that that thing will be for them lasting Joy. If I could only have it, if I could only grab it, if I could only work hard enough to get it, if I could only reach, if I could only run fast enough, if I could only be good enough to to truly grab this thing that will finally fill up this hole inside of me and give me the joy that I'm looking for. And so they run after these things. They work hard to get them only to realize that joy eludes them. It evades them. It runs from them. And so they, they keep looking, and when they gain the next thing, they realize it doesn't transfer into sustainable joy. So they dump that and go on to the next thing, and they spend their life looking and looking and never actually being joyful and resting in Christ. How frustrating of a life that is. Nothing in this world can give you the joy you so desperately crave. Nothing. Only Jesus can be the joy that cannot be taken from us because he cannot be taken from us and as long as we abide in him and he abides in us, we have the joy that we so long for. And even if we face the deepest sorrow in this life, our joy survives. Not only that, it thrives Because God is so powerful, he can take the deepest sorrow and transform it into the deepest joy. If you want your greatest joy, and you have to be honest with yourself whether you really want to be that happy. If you want it, you must see and savor Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, and receive from him all the benefits, all the pleasures, all the grace that is tied up in his death and resurrection.
It's yours in Christ. And Christ is your greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you to make us really, really happy people in you, your Son, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. God, I want to be happy, and not just happy, I want to be really, really happy and have my greatest joy that cannot be taken from me. And I know there's at least a few people here today that want the same thing. So God, I plead that you do a work of grace and help us to believe the truths we've heard this morning from Jesus and that we would find in him our greatest joy, that even when we pray for greatest joy, that prayer will be given to us and answered in Christ for the fame of Christ, for the glory of Christ, so that our joy may be full. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us to make us joyful people in Christ and to prize and treasure his life, death, burial, and resurrection more than anything else. You need to make it happen, God. Please.